You are listening to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, your source for all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. Um, and it is good and it is fitting that we're all here together. Um, you know, we we're talking beforehand and with all the good food and good drink, you know, this is the feast day of the common doctor, the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. And so this is proper that we Catholics gather today in honor of St. Thomas Aquinas. There's, um, you know, for many uh, men, there's something called Exodus 90, right? Where you kind of intentionally give up good things to kind of discipline your body. You know, we kind of grow soft as, as modern and as men. And so you impose these, these impositions on yourself to kind of strengthen your, your will and your resolve. Um, but we have a dispensation today, right? <laughs> to celebrate St. Thomas. At least that's what I tell myself. I gave myself a disposition to have a beer in honor of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, to begin, um, it is good that we perhaps begin with a prayer. And so you have in front of you a prayer that has been assigned to St. Thomas Aquinas, who would recite this prayer. This is a, a shorter version of that longer prayer that he would recite before his study. Uh, but before we, we begin to read St. Thomas and begin to put on the mind of St. Thomas, if you will, in some way, let's, let's pray uh, to God and invite St. Thomas's intercession. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Together. O infinite creator, give me keenness of apprehension, capacity for remembering, method and ease in learning, insight and interpretation, and copious eloquence in speech. Instruct my beginning, direct my progress, and set thy seal upon the finished work. Thou who art true God and true man, who livest and reignest, world without end. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As alluded to, the aim this evening is to convince all present of the absolute necessity of St. Thomas Aquinas in the life of the church and subsequently in our own lives. Um, and I hope, I'm hopeful that this is not going to be a daunting or difficult task, right? That we're all committed devotees to the common doctor, St. Thomas. But in case there are, and I have perhaps a sneaky suspicion that there are a few holdouts out there, um, we're going to need a little bit of convincing, so I'm going to go through this for us. Now, to begin, before we look at the need for Aquinas today, it will be necessary for us to explore the historical necessity of Aquinas in the past, right? What role did Aquinas play in the life of the church in yesteryear? And since this will provide, and, and we need to do this because this will provide the grounds, if you will, for my argument for his necessity today. So we'll look at his thought and his role in the past to see the importance of his role today. So let's begin by exploring St. Thomas's impact on the Holy Mother Church in years past. Now, as many of us know, St. Thomas was a 13th century Dominican friar, having died in March in the year 1274 at the young age of 49. So a relatively young man. I say that now. Uh, he was canonized. Now, this is impressive. He was canonized a mere 50 years after his death. Right? In 1323, by Pope John the 22nd, 
who declared at that time that St. Thomas alone had enlightened the church more than any other doctor. Now think about this. At the moment of his canonization, St. Thomas has enlightened the church more than any other doctor. So you have to think, well, who is he speaking of here? He's speaking, of course, of Bonaventure. Well, Bonaventure was a contemporary of his, but nonetheless, you have the great Bonaventure. You have Bernard, Leo the Great, uh, St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar, um, the great reformer, Gregory the Great, Cyril of Jerusalem, Ambrose, Anselm, Basil, Bede, Athanasius, and of course, Augustine himself. I mean, these are heavyweights within the church. And here you have the Pope at his canonization, John XXII, saying, Aquinas is superior to all of these. And following in Pope John XXII's uh, support of Aquinas, numerous other supreme pontiffs of Holy Mother Church have voiced their support of Aquinas. In fact, there's this volume by this Dominican, um, a French Dominican, who records over 250 pages of papal testimonials to uh, St. Thomas, lauding his, his work and his mind and his holiness. 250 pages of papal decrees. One such decree I have on, on your handout, on this, on, if you flip this handout, and that's the first quote, which is from Innocent VI, who reigned from the 13, mid uh, 14th century, so like 1352, and he was, he was uh, pontiff for 10 years, and he stated that, quote, those who have a firm grasp of the philosophy of St. Thomas are never found far astray from the path of truth, and whoever was opposed, it has always been suspect of error. That's a great quote, right? <laughs> Stay close to St. Thomas. Now, importantly, such verbal ecclesial support of the philosophy and the thought of Aquinas has been actualized, right? They're not, they're not just doing lip service to St. Thomas. It has been actualized in the various canonical decrees issued by the eight councils following the life of St. Thomas, all of which, so all the councils after St. Thomas's death have utilized this thought um, of, of a Thomas, they used it in passing judgments. They used it in defining doctrines and casting out heresies. They've always had recourse to the thought of St. Thomas to do so. No, no more, no, uh, no, 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 none to the greater degree as the Council of Trent, right, who utilized his thought extensively. So why then has a church endorsed St. Thomas in his thought so heavily? And I would argue that there are three principal reasons why the church has had recourse to St. Thomas, okay? The first, and perhaps the foremost, as alluded to by Aaron, is because Aquinas tells the truth, right? He always tells the truth. And the truth can be a scary thing, right? Once you learn the truth, it has many and varied demands on you, right? It seizes upon you. And as a result of that, many people deny truth because it, it causes them to look upon their own lives and cause them to change their own lives. And St. Thomas was a philosopher and a theologian who relentlessly pursued the truth. And once his intellect grasped onto that truth, he felt the need to express that truth. 
And as proof of this, I would like to turn to that second quote. Um, this is from the um, St. Thomas's Magnus Opus, right? His Summa, as it's commonly known, the Summa Theologica. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great work if you don't have it, right? This is the five-volume set normally um, that you can purchase. And it's a great uh, treasure to have and own in your own home to have recourse to. So I highly recommend it. Um, it's also online, but you need, you need the text. You need the text. Um, and again, it's the uh, Summa Theologica, uh, Secunde Secunde, right, is the reference, which is the second part of the second. It just, it sounds uh, very mystical, but it's not. It's just the second part of the second part, question 11, article 3. And what he's asking here is whether heretics ought to be tolerated. He writes, with regards to heretics, two points must be observed. One, on their own side, and the other, on the side of the church. So looking at it from two different angles in regards to, to those who are in heresy. On the one side of the church, on, or on the side of the church, on, the, on their own side, there is the sin, whereby they deserve not only to be separated from the church by excommunication, but also to be severed from the world by death. For it is very much a grave matter to corrupt the faith, which quickens the soul, than to forge money, which supports temporal life. Wherefore, if foragers of money and other evildoers are forthwith condemned to death by the secular authority, much more reason is there for heretics, as soon as they are convicted of heresy, to be not only excommunicated, but even put to death. So if you are, like he's, he has a very robust understanding of the human person. There's a body and a soul. The soul is more value than the body, right? If we put to death people who harm the body, so much so should we put to death those who harm the soul. But then he goes on, thank goodness. On the part of the church, however, there is mercy, which looks to, to the conversion of the wanderer. Wherefore, she condemns not uh, once, but after the first and second um, admonition, as the apostle directs. Right, so there's mercy on the church. So we don't, ex we don't kill them right away. We give them a chance for conversion. <laughs> once again, he tells the truth. This is hard teaching, especially hard for our modern ears, right? But nonetheless, he speaks it. When he learns something, his intellect seizes upon it, he speaks it. All right, so that's the first reason. He tells the truth. The second reason why the Holy Mother Church has held up the thought of St. Thomas is because, I would argue, he's the master of common sense, right? He's the master of common sense. He has an uncanny knack of sniffing out the right position amongst a hundred erroneous ones, right? Particularly in ethics. And it's common. You don't have to have this uh, common sense. It's just an intuition that we all know. And sometimes we confuse things with all this kind of confounded reasoning. But just basic common sense and intuitive knowledge, as it's called. And as a point of this, I would like to turn to uh, St. Thomas's Summa once again. This is from the supplemental section, which means 
Yeah, he died before he was able to finish the Summa. And as a result, his, his followers, his, his students, kind of looked at his notes and finished it for him. So it's not the direct thought that, of St. Thomas. It's, it's most likely from his notes that they kind of got this information and wrote it down on his behalf after his death. So this is from Supplemental Question 65, Article 1. And here he's going to be asking the question, um, whether it is against natural law to have several wives. All right, this is a question on polygamy. Whether it's against the law to have several wives. He has a big, long answer, so I'm not going to read the, it to us in an entirety. But he, he begins this discourse by saying there are three goods to marriage. Three goods. There's three main positive elements of, of matrimony. The first being the beginning of children, the beginning and the rearing of kids, right? That's the, that's the principal good of marriage. You get to have kids and raise them. Uh, the second good is the, the fellowship, the friendship that exists between the spouses, between husband and wife. That's a good to be embraced. And the third good is the, is the sign value of the marital relationship. Namely, husband and wife become one, and that oneness then becomes a sign, a symbol in our world of the union that exists between Christ and his bride, Holy Mother Church. Right, so those are the three goods of marriage. That's how he begins. And then he, he continues and he states, I think I have it quoted, and this is um, number three. He continues then, accordingly, plurality, plurality of wives neither wholly destroys nor in any way hinders the first end of marriage, since one man is sufficient to get children of several wives and to rear the children born of them. So he's looking at these goods and saying, well, if you have many wives, you can have many more children. So it seems to be a betterment, at least in regards to the first good. So it doesn't seem to be contrary to natural law to have many wives. But he continues. However, having a multitude of, of wives is against the natural law because it violates the second good. What was the second good again? Friendship. The friendship between the spouses. Since, he's, since he explains, since it is difficult enough to be friends with one woman, let alone many. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's common sense, right? Anyone who's married knows this, right? It's difficult to have an intimate relationship with one, especially a woman, right? It's very, so it's contrary to that second law. It's common sense. Anyone who's married knows this, right? Um, and that's one of probably the most humorous elements in the Summa, I find. Uh, he has a great sense of humor. But again, this is intensely satisfying, this kind of commonsensical a thought of St. Thomas. It's intensely satisfying since, as Chesterton once quipped, the problem with common sense is not too common. Right? And so when you see it, you're like, ah, it's lovely. So St. Thomas, he tells the truth. Secondly, St. Thomas is the master of common sense. And the third reason why Holy Mother Church upholds the thought of St. Thomas throughout all these years is because Thomas is simple. Right? A lot of us think that St. Thomas is this intellectual giant that can't be approached. 
It is untrue. Thomas in his writing is very simple. There's nothing complex in the thought of St. Thomas. His goal in his writing is simply to present the truth in all of its radiance, in its, all of its clarity. There is rarely any rhetoric, right? There's rarely any passion. There's never an appeal to irrationality. There is nothing but unadulterated lucidity in the thought of St. Thomas. He is wholly simple. As proof, this is quote four from your handout. This is from the Prima Secundi question five, article three, whether one can be happy in this life. Is it possible to obtain happiness here and now? St. Thomas says, I answer that. Notice the simplicity of his language. I answer that a certain participation of happiness can be had in this life, but perfect and true happiness cannot be had in this life. Right? That is reserved for the hereafter, eternal beatitude, gazing upon the Godhead for all eternity. But that doesn't mean we can't have some form of imperfect happiness here and now. Thank goodness, right? We can have conversations with our wives, right? Not many, just one. That's enough. It's enough happiness. So he's simple. He is truthful and he has common sense. And so to read St. Thomas then is really like breathing fresh air. He is refreshing. And because of this, the Catholic Church, recognizing both the nobility of his mind, and of course, in addition to, we, we really speak of this, but it's absolutely true, and this is, really, this is the reason why he is in fact a saint, is his steadfast and undaunting holiness. Right? And as a result of this, he is recognized and upheld um, and prescribed by the church throughout the centuries. And then this has been the norm. Now, what happened um, in the mid to late 19th, early 20th century, you had what is known as a Thomistic revival. Right? His, he was very popular, especially in the schools of thought in the universities, so, um, all through his life, I mean, after his death, all through the church. Uh, then he kind of fell out of favor a little bit. Um, at least he wasn't known. But then, again, you have this revival, this renaissance of his thought in the late 19th, early 20th century. And this begins in 1879. So in 1879, Pope Leo XIII published an encyclical entitled Attorney Patris, The Eternal God. And this document stressed the value of Thomistic thought, not only for the good of theology, right? This, his thought was being promulgated and taught in these schools of theology throughout the universities in Europe. But also, uh, Pope Leo XIII said, for the advancement of culture. So it's not simply for the academics. Thomas, as Leo XIII um, mentions in this article, or in this encyclical, was a cure for a widespread cultural ailment, namely something he called radical subjectivism that was plaguing, as he says, quote-unquote, all ranks of society that vexed both private life and public life. So this 
this vexation, this ailment of subjective, radical subjectivism was everywhere. And what does the church say? Go to Thomas, right? Leo says that the wisdom of St. Thomas is like a sea that contains all wisdom which has been transmitted from antiquity. And as a result of this, it is uniquely able to answer the problems of that day. So, the, so Leo is calling for everyone to return to St. Thomas, not only to be studied in the universities, but also to be promulgated through the culture somehow. And then in 1907, Pope Pius X wrote an encyclical called, encyclical called Prescende Dominici Grigis, right? And again, he confirms Leo XIII's judgment regarding the importance of St. Thomas, but further mentions the importance of certain metaphysical principles of St. Thomas. So it's not just St. Thomas in general, but it's these certain philosophical or metaphysical principles which are essential. And then in 1917, you have Pope Benedict XV. He promulgates the Code of Canon Law. Right? Of course, we have, we've had a new Code of Canon Law promulgated since then, in 1983, which is the new Code of Canon Law. But this is the older code. And in this Code of Canon Law, promulgated by Benedict, um, he instructs all Catholic institutions. All Catholic institutions. Um, to, quote, deal in every particular with the studies of mental philosophy and theology and the education of pupils and such sciences according to the method, the doctrine, and the principles of the angelic doctor, St. Thomas, and religiously adhere thereto. So St. Thomas here in 17, excuse me, 1917, his thought is codified, right? And this is the code of canon law. It is now prescribed as law that all institutions have to teach St. Thomas, okay? Big step in this revival of Thomistic thought. And then finally in 1923, uh, Pius XI, another encyclical, Studorium Ducem. Here, Pius insisted that Aquinas not only be called the angelic doctor, but also the common doctor, or the universal doctor of the church. And then later on, he clarified what he meant by this. He says, St. Thomas is the universal or common doctor on account of the churching having adopted his philosophy as her own. So the thought of St. Thomas becomes the church's philosophy. And obviously, this is it's a pretty impressive language that the church is using in endorsing and in promoting the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And as a result of this, as a, as a result of all these papal decrees, what you, what you had is a great movement uh, of schools that develop, these neo-scholastical Thomistic schools that develop throughout all the known world. And there's various um, schools that develop. You have the... Um, Neo-scholastic Thomism uh, under the great um, Reginald Gergou Lagrange, right? This great Thomistic philosopher. And he was very keen on, let's just follow St. Thomas and the entire tradition of commentators associated with St. Thomas. Okay? And then you have the existential Thomism, 
which was championed by this great French philosopher, Etienne Gilson. Right? Um, and he talked about, well, what's so great about St. Thomas is his uniqueness, specifically in his philosophical understanding of the distinction between a thing's essence and a thing's existence, the kind of, or um, essence and his existence, right? These kind of robust, meaningful philosophical terms. He, St. Thomas developed his philosophy and Gilson and his followers and this existential school championed this unique philosophical development. You have the Laval Thomists, and um, Charles de Koenig is their champion out of the University of Laval in Montreal. Quebec, Quebec thank you. Yeah. Um, and then you have the Transcendental Thomists. This where it gets a little wonky, right? You have Karl Rahner and his followers, and they're trying to reconcile St. Thomas with modern philosophy. And then finally, you have also another school championed and endorsed by uh, the great John Paul II, right? This phenomenological Thomism which kind of unites the, the philosophy of Husserl um, with Thomistic anthropology. So you have these various schools that are trying to understand and, and push and, and um, develop the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas as a consequence of these papal encyclicals promoting the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, with that said, what I find particularly interesting is the historical timing of this renaissance, Think about it. This, this revival concurs roughly with the full realization of the Industrial Revolution. Okay. Now remember, the Industrial Revolution um, is this uh, major movement that happens in the world wherein man, modern man, is kind of moved from his, his proper place I would argue, right, which is on the farm, right, in these kind of rural settings, and he is placed in an urban industrialized setting, right? So this great migration of man from the country to the city. Right? And of course, this has all kinds of implications for us. It changes everything for uh, human civilization. Um, and it raised all kinds of questions. Um, the cost of labor, right? In the past, people worked for themselves to provide food for the table. They're out in the gardens tilling, taking the crops, placing it for the family to eat, and maybe selling it to buy shoes or something other, like a bartering system, economics, right? And all of a sudden, I'm no longer making things for myself. Well, how much is my labor worth then? What is the cost of my labor? Right? So this is a huge question then. Now I'm selling my labor now. So how much is that worth? Um, you have questions about property ownership. How much land should a man need? Right? Does he need two acres and a cow, or is he sufficient to live on a small strip of land in the city? And what about politics? Right? What about the dignity of the human person? The importance of family. All these things are changing. The dignity of work. Uh, the concern for the poor now, right? Because you have radical poverty that's introduced as, as people move into the cities. So all kinds of Concrete, practical problems are developing as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution. And the church sees all this and sees the ill effects of the Industrial, industrial Revolution on the human person. And she responds with practical solutions, right? This is where the church responds in her so-called social documents, 
Right? So you have Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum in 1891. You have Pius XI, Quadrissimo Anno in 1931. Pachama Terrace of John XXIII in 1963. So the church is responding to these very concrete needs. And she's emphasizing the importance of labor. She's emphasizing the importance of the worker. She's emphasizing the dignity of the human person. She's emphasizing the importance of solidarity. Right? All these kind of important movements that affect the practical reality, realities of the human person. That's what's happening. And then at the same time, concurrently, what else is she doing? She's promulgating and promoting the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So what you see here is that the human person obviously has two elements, two fundamental elements, right? You have a body and a soul, a spiritual component and a, a, a physical component, if you will. And the church, seeing the, the effects of the industrial, industrial revolution, is responding to both these needs. She's responding to the practical concerns of the human person through her social documents, but then she's also concerned with her spiritual, our spiritual well-being and saying you need to return to St. Thomas to affect the ills of the Industrial Revolution on our souls, on our intellectual faculties, on our spiritual faculties. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is, well, how does the thought of St. Thomas counter the ill effects of the Industrial Revolution on our spiritual faculties? Right? I think that's the next question. Here's the answer. So I think. Now recall that the Industrial Revolution pulled man from the land. Once he lived, worked, and died and placed him under the droning artificial lights of the factory. From the farm to the factory. So you have a movement then away from immediate sense experience of reality. Right? When you're on the farm, you're out in the land, you're experiencing the soil, you have dirt under your nails, you feel the wind, you're in contact with the earth and with reality in a very visceral way. But once he moves out of that environment and is placed in the artificiality of the city, he no longer has that experience. He's removed from these, the, the, the grounding of any kind of knowledge or formation, right? There's no more wind to, to experience. There's no more sky. There's no more land. All there is is artificiality in the city. And this places a huge epistemological problem on the human person. Because as Aristotle rightly notices, all knowledge originates in the senses. All knowledge originates in the senses. So if we want to perfect our intellects, um, we need to have contact with reality. And now man is divorced from reality, so he's no longer able to grow in wisdom and the intellectual virtues. And this is why the church says you need to go to Thomas. Why? Because Thomas is the philosopher of the real. He's a realist philosopher. Right? He understands that all of our philosophizing, all of our, you know, all of our understanding of God and the Trinity has its origins in contact with reality. 
in contact with being, with, with existing things. This is his philosophy. This is the main point. This is that metaphysical principles of St. Thomas. That being is primary. And to kind of tease this out a little further, I want to turn to um, one of his arguments for the existence of God. Thomas has these five famous proofs, if you will, for the existence of God. Uh, this proof um, that I would like to turn to now is from the Prima Pars. I'm trying to find the quote. Um, Article 2, question 3. I think I have it written there. This is uh, reference 5. I'll just read it from here. The fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. Hence, it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly, do they achieve their end. Now, whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. Now, why I'm bringing this up, Again, we're saying that St. Thomas understands that all knowledge originates in the senses. And look what St. Thomas is doing. He sees, we see that things, what is he talking about? He's looking out. He's looking out at the natural cosmos, the natural order of things. And he's observing things. He's in contact with reality. And he sees these natural bodies that act for an end, and they always act for an end in the same way, for the same result. And they do so not by chance, not fortuitously, but designedly. And so therefore, this, they, they must have either intelligence themselves, or if they don't, then they must be directed by something with intelligence. My point being is that the font of this conclusion, from him moving to the conclusion that there is a God all begins with him seeing a bird fly and build a nest. He sees this bird always flying to build a nest. Well, does that bird have intelligence? Well, not in the same way we do, right? Not at all. So how can it do it? Something must be directing it as the arrow is directed by the, like an archer. So St. Thomas, again, rooted concretely, intimately, for all of his philosoph all of his philosophy, all of his theology, in contact with being, in contact with existence. We need to be immersed in reality in order to come to any kind of certitude about any kind of philosophic or theological truth. Because all knowledge originates in the senses. And of course, we know Thomas himself was schooled in this type of of learning, of this kind of poetic knowledge. He was, at, the, at a very young age, sent off to a Benedictine monastery, Monte Cassino. And from the age of five to ten, he was schooled by the Benedictine monks. And the Benedictine monks, just like our own monks out in Clear Creek, what do they do? They farm, right? They tend the land. They brew beer, make cheese. Very sensory, um, engaged realities. And so, too, would have been the formation of the great... 
um, doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas. So, you can see then the church desiring us to be saved, if you will, to be healed from the, the effects of the industrial, industrial, industrial revolution has ordered that we be concerned with the certain principles which are affect our body, coming from the social documents of the church, but also that we have returned to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Because St. Thomas is the, Aquinas points us to being, to reality, as the font for all of our spiritual um, nourishment and spiritual perfection. So we can see then why the return to the realism of Thomas would be a correction, right, to the spiritual or intellectual amputation that was occurring during the Industrial Revolution. And how Jesus, out of love for his bride, would provide this twofold elixir, providing the body, our bodies with the medicine, naming the church social documents, but also providing our souls with the medicine that we need to heal us, which is the realism of St. Thomas. So that brings us, I think, now to where we are today. Right. Um, so Thomas was good then. Is he good now? My argument, and we'll conclude here, is that we need a new neo-Thomistic revival. Right? We need a new revival of Thomistic thought. Why? Because we have entered into this, this third wave of the Industrial Revolution. Right? We are now in the complete digitalization of manufacturing, right? We live in a digital world, which removes us even further from the factories, even further from the land where all knowledge and truth originates. So the church has already begun to help us by issuing a certain amount of social documents. And I have those listed in that little um, chart Right, we have Popularum Progresso in, in 1967, Laborum um, in 1981, Caritas and Veritate in 2009, of course, of late. We have Francis's Laudato Si. Right? So the church is beginning to provide the practical tools in which we need to overcome this digitalized world in which we're living. And so now we're, now we're just waiting with bated breath for the church to declare a return to St. Thomas. But we don't have to wait for the church to declare, right? We can begin ourselves um, to heal ourselves from this digital movement, this digital revolution that is occurring by having a profound and deep recourse to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And that's what we're doing here today, right? Learning to love this great doctor of the church. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast can be found on your favorite streaming platform, including Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify, along with any of your favorite streaming platforms. Together, our faith goes further.